Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for tuning in to the Lawyer's Toolbox on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. Today is Thursday, September 23rd, and I'm your host, Nick Augustine. This show is produced by ALRPRA Incorporated, a national law practice management agency headquartered downtown Chicago, Illinois, and serving greater Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. We help manage our clients' business so they can spend more time practicing law. Today's guest is... Attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm, located in Elmhurst, Illinois, in suburban DuPage County here in Chicagoland. Uh, Charles was on the show on Tuesday talking about personal injury, and today we're here to talk a little bit about uh, medical malpractice. Attorney Charles Cannon is an experienced trial attorney who has successfully litigated many types of injury cases over the past 10 years. Attorney Charles Cannon has a bachelor's from Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington, Illinois, holds his law degree from the DePaul College of Law here in uh, Chicago. And also, Attorney Charles Cannon is a member of the American Association for Justice, the Illinois Trial Lawyers Association, the Illinois State Bar Association, the American Bar Association, and other professional groups. Now, before we begin today, we want to remind our guests that we do have two weekly radio shows, first being the Consumer's Law Journal, which airs every second or every Tuesday, and second, the Lawyer's Toolbox, which airs on Thursday afternoons. Both Law Talk radio shows air at 3 p.m. Central, which is also 4 Eastern and 1 Pacific. We do have a great show for you this afternoon. We invite your call or questions by email at info at ALRPRA.com. Again, I-N-F-O at ALRPRA.com. Or also by calling uh, the show by dialing area code 917-889-9732 and pressing option 1 to be placed in the caller queue. Telephone number again is area code 917-889-9732, option 1. We have a quick uh, promotional contest to tell you about today. All people who do call in or send an email to the show with a question are eligible to receive free admission to the uh, fourth quarter social media ethics and safety seminar that's going to be held here in Chicago and hosted by ALRPRA on Two sessions, Monday morning or a morning session on Thursday, October 21st, and an evening session on Wednesday, October 27th. The regular price of admission will be $25, and participants not located in Chicago will be able to attend the live seminars via webinar. By way of general disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on your facts and location. You're always encouraged to privately consult a professional and should be advised that the laws may vary from state to state as they could apply to the comments made on the show. Comments made by callers to attorneys and other professional guests do not constitute attorney, client, or other professional relationships. All callers do remain confidential, and all rights are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. Without further ado, let's uh, introduce our, our guest, Chuck Cannon. Chuck, thanks for coming back today. Sure, I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to you going through and giving a lecture to our attorneys who out there are listening on how to spot medical malpractice cases, what to do when they do spot them, and I'll just run down the list of your talking points. First, we're going to uh, listen to Attorney Cannon talk about how to recognize a case. Second, we'll talk about how screening is very essential. Uh, third, we'll get into some scenarios such as failure to diagnose, followed by surgical errors, then hospital and institutional negligence, and then finally, obstetrical negligence. Did I pronounce that right? I always have problems with that word. Is it obstetrical? Okay. (laughs) All right. Chuck, take it away. Tell us first about recognizing medical malpractice cases. Well, recognizing a case, generally an attorney is confronted with that situation when a client or a friend or possible client contacts you because there was an unexpected and bad result from some kind of medical care. Recognizing a case obviously requires much more than a bad result. It's essential to get the medical records first. 
So if you're an attorney who's wanting to handle a medical malpractice case or review one or get it ready for review if you want to refer it to someone else, definitely you have to have all of the medical records regarding the treatment at issue. This can be expensive and it can be time-consuming because you can wind up with boxes of records in certain cases, but there's no way to, to determine whether a case exists without the medical records. It can take some time to get medical records, and the different treaters and different hospitals might have different procedures. Records might be in storage facilities, so you generally want to do that right away because medical malpractice cases, like all tort cases, have a statute of limitations. In Illinois, the general rule is two years for any injury case, and medical malpractice cases are not an exception to that. However, if a client comes to you because something happened more than two years ago, you should not close the door or give up. There are instances where if a client has not discovered their injury or discovered that the injury was wrongfully called, caused within that two years, the statute of limitations may be extended, and that is a very fact-specific determination depending on the case. The classic example is if a sponge or some other item gets left inside a person during surgery, the person might not know anything was left and might not even have any symptoms until some time has passed and might not realize the cause of any symptoms or conditions that are caused by that sponge until more than two years later. That's a good example of when the discovery rule will apply. Say three years after a surgery, an MRI or an X-ray is finally taken and the sponge is found, that's the time when the statute of limitations begins to run. However, for an adult plaintiff, you have a four-year limit. You can't go past the four years, even if you have a good reason for discovering it after that. But these are reasons why a person needs to very quickly get the medical records together and start reviewing the case. Once you have your records, if you're trying to review it, what you need to do is get your medical literature together regarding that procedure or the condition at issue so you can educate yourself about why this may have happened. Medical literature is found in any medical library. Sometimes big city libraries like the Chicago Public Library will have a lot of textbooks and other things. However, we have the UIC library downtown in Chicago, and we also have Loyola Library in Maywood. Those libraries have pretty much any medical literature you'd ever want to find on any issue. They can be researched on the Internet from your office or home, and generally those articles are not going to be printable off the Internet because you'll have to have a paid subscription but you can go to one of our medical libraries and look up your literature that way so you can educate yourself. Now, every medical malpractice case that you file, you're required to file a physician's report or a nurse's report, depending on the conditions there, and you will have to talk to an expert in any case. It's best to talk to your expert early because he can direct you to the right literature and give you opinions and make sure that you have all of your, your medical records together pretty tough for an attorney, unless you're very experienced in medical malpractice, to recognize when certain records are missing. An expert can help you make sure that you have all the records in any case. While you're doing all of this, what you're trying to do is determine whether there's been a deviation from the standard of care. Physicians, hospitals, nurses, and other medical professionals are not required to be the best surgeon or doctor in the world. They're not required to provide the best and most state-of-the-art care. But what they are required to do is provide care and treatment that fits with the standard of care. And the standard of care is really the reasonable man concept extended to an expert like a medical professional. The standard of care is what a reasonable physician or nurse would do under the same or similar circumstances. And that's what you need to be thinking of and learning about 
while you're reviewing a case. Yeah. I have a question about medical records and when you're getting the medical records up front. Yes. Are are the client oftentimes uh you know, and I know there's a difference out there, uh what is sort of standard in the practice as far as clients paying costs for medical records? I've heard some people say that if they're serious about uh their case that they will bring those in or, you know, are you taking a gamble? What's a what's a general rule of thumb? Well, this varies from case to case and from law firm to law firm. I would say it's it's probably split down the middle. I would say many firms will automatically fund the cost of obtaining any medical records. However, it's very common for a firm to request a possible client to obtain their own medical records in the beginning for the initial review, and once it's determined that there is a case, then the law firm may take over and make sure they get everything else. It, it depends on the case as well. If it's a case that conceivably is worth many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, most attorneys will just go ahead if they're confident and request all those records themselves. If the case seems very, very difficult or the damages are more minimal, uh, then the attorneys might meet with the client and ask the client to fund the, at least obtaining the records and maybe your initial costs of filing suit or retaining an expert just so that the client is also invested in the case as well. So you see both mm-hmm. of them from firm to firm or within the same firm, different cases might have different requirements. Okay. Now, what, now with the experts, um, is it is it reasonable practice to, um, let's say, do a videotape deposition of, of an ex of you know an evidence step of the expert um, up front uh, as you're going through your discovery process? Uh, I mean, I suppose I'm jumping ahead to after you've decided that you want to you know take and pursue the case. Um, talk a little about about that. Well, it depends on your expert. I would say generally, if it's your own expert that you've retained to convince a jury that there has been a deviation from the standard of care, you're most likely going to want that expert live in front of the jury so the communication between your expert and the jury is better than it would be on a videotape. However, in some cases you might have five or six different experts, and it might be in all different states across the country. Then you might pick that your two most important experts you'll want in front of the jury live, other experts who maybe are concentrating on a a small piece of evidence or a, an essential but yet narrow sliver of what your case is about can testify by videotape. And I've done that in trials where you'll have two experts live in front of the jury and then a third expert who's really got a more narrow issue and a more narrow focus. You might simply play a brief videotape to settle that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little follow-up question on the deviation from standard of care. Um, are there any odd upsec- exceptions or peculiarities um, where there are exceptional standards of care um, other than the reasonable person um, in the similar professional uh, spot? Well, no, it, it's generally the standard of care depending on those circumstances. So if, if you're dealing with a case involving infectious disease, it would be what an infectious disease condition would do under those circumstances. If it's a surgery case, it would be what a surgeon should do. And so it, and to that extent, yes, there are special circumstances where you're going to have to get a certain expert. Under our rules and, and Code of Civil Procedure, an expert who's going to testify at trial has to be knowledgeable in that specialty. You can't have an internal medicine physician from the office down the street come in and be testifying about uh, very specialized infectious disease issues or, or oncology issues in a, in a failure to diagnose cancer case. You need to have your oncologist ready to testify. Mm-hmm. 
Very good. Uh, let's move on to a little bit about screening, if you could. Well, screening is the term for deciding whether there's a case or not. And obviously it involves getting all of your prep work and expert and literature together to determine whether there's been a deviation from the standard of care. And a very important issue in these cases is beyond determining whether there was simply a deviation, but you have to make sure that you have your causation and the amount of damages together to make sure the case is worthwhile for you and for your clients. Prosecuting medical malpractice cases can be extremely expensive, and I would say you have to be ready to spend $50,000 at minimum if you're going to start doing a medical malpractice case. Winning is also extremely difficult. Jurors are very biased in favor of doctors. Jurors are very accepting of doctors saying that they've made a mistake, or even if doctors deny making a mistake, if you prove they made a mistake, jurors are very accepting of the fact that doctors are human and doctors do make mistakes. This, this idea that, that frivolous medical malpractice lawsuits are filed and are hurting the profession has really, in this day and age in Illinois, become a myth. You, you can't even file a medical malpractice case without having an expert's report that there is a meritorious case. And beyond that, the mere fact of the expense and time that has to go into these very difficult cases really means that screening is your, your most essential step when you first take a case. And what I mean by screening is don't take a bad case. And most firms that deal in medical malpractice would, would never touch a bad case because of the reason of the expense and time that goes into it. If you see a bad case filed, generally it means that you have an attorney who's maybe less experienced in them, and that's why a bad decision to file a weak case was made. There's really no crisis of numerous frivolous cases being filed. Now, as far as showing proximate cause, obviously, but sometimes it doesn't seem so obvious when you're looking through a, a, a client's records and some horrible tragedy has happened to a family, you can have a doctor that makes a mistake, but that particular mistake, even if it's a deviation from the standard of care, didn't cause the injury you're talking about. And this is where you get into some really esoteric and complicated medical issues. You can have doctors during surgery who very clearly have injured an organ or cut in the wrong place, but if a patient dies, you really have to show that that injury is what led to the patient's death. Patients undergoing surgery obviously already have some, some issue wrong with them, and there can be a host of other issues and other pre-existing conditions that might lead to the injury or death in your case. So beyond finding a deviation, you have to make sure that deviation is a direct and proximate cause of the injury. And this sounds basic, but it can be extremely difficult because if you have a patient who's got a history uh, of 40 years of life, they're going to have lots of things in their 40 years that can cause different injuries. Different infections can occur, uh, different uh, reactions to anesthetic can occur, and these things might not have anything to do with medical negligence. They can just be unfortunate complications. So you have to make sure that you understand the medicine, understand the physiology, and that your expert is not only going to tell you that there's been a deviation, but also be able to explain logically and consistent with the science that those deviations cause the injury or death in your case. Finally, you have to make sure that the injury and damages merit the time and expense you have to invest in these cases. And that's not just for the law firm and the lawyers, it's for the client as well. Lawsuits are very difficult for clients, and for a family to be dragged through a lawsuit in medical malpractice, even though they think they want one, 
it, it may not be worth it if a jury is not going to award you very much money or even less money than the cost you've put into it. And this has to be something that's very carefully reviewed before you accept a case. Usually when your potential client is sitting in your office, he's going to be very gung-ho to push you towards a lawsuit. But you have to make sure that you can recover enough that's not only going to reimburse the costs you've spent, pay your fees, but also get the client something they'll be satisfied with. There's no point in winning a trial to send home unhappy clients, especially given the sacrifice they have to put into it, not to mention the sacrifice the lawyers have to put into it. That's all part of screening. And screening requires your ability to recognize a case, your ability to find experts that can help you, learn the medicine and find the medical literature you need, and then really make your tough decisions based on your experience and looking at other jury verdicts in the area to determine whether the case is even worth filing, assuming you can win it. Hmm. Yeah, I have a question. You know, one of the one of the uh, things that we've heard, you know, people say is that. Um, the the poor cases are the ones that go to trial. The good cases are the ones that settle. Um, what about medical malpractice? How many? What is there any good rule of thumb on how many of these settle or how many go to trial? Um, well, what percentage differing from general general di- difference from personal injury generally? Well, what percentage of them settle? I, I can't offer you a statistic on that off the top of my head. I would say generally it is true that that good cases may settle. However, it is not true that if a case winds up at trial, it's because it's not a good case. I, I've had many situations in my own career, and obviously talked to many colleagues about it, and very good cases can wind up at trial simply because of pride, and pride being that of the physician in your case. When you're suing a physician, very often their insurance policy will require not only that the insurance company agree to settle, but that the physician consent to settlement. And that relationship can put a whole wrinkle in your case that really has nothing to do with the merits. You might have a very good lawsuit, solid science behind your side of it, huge injuries, but if you have a physician who's prideful and won't consent, you're going to go to trial. And you don't know while you're screening whether you might be in that situation. The same can be on the reverse. If you have a physician with an insurance policy that requires the insurance company and the physician to consent, you may have a physician who's requesting that their insurance company settle the case and pay the limits of their policy. But if that insurance company has a different point of view and they can get stuck in their ways with their adjusters reviewing it, you might have a trial in that case. Additionally, Very good. Go ahead. Yeah. I, no, I was just going to go, go ahead. I'm sorry I cut you off. No, that's all right. And I was just going to say sometimes the two sides just don't agree and you can see uh, – huge jury verdicts in the reporters or in the newspapers, and that might be because there's an issue of what the two sides think the damages are, the money damages. A plaintiff may go forward to trial uh, insisting on getting paid a sum in excess of $10 million for a very severe injury that requires lifetimes of medical care and many, many hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical care throughout this person's life. But the defense might just think there's a different number value on it. And the defense attorney might, you know, candidly agree. They may lose a trial, but they just have a dispute over how much money they should pay. And you can see jury verdicts coming out for over $10 million. The odds are pretty fair that the defense attorneys and even the defendant doctors or nurses in those cases 
maybe didn't really think they were completely innocent and they would win that trial, but the case couldn't be settled because they wouldn't pay an amount that the plaintiffs would be willing to accept. There are so many factors involved, uh, so much more complex than personal injury, which is why I'm glad that we've got you on the show today to uh, iron some of the wrinkles out. So um, let's take a pause for our first sponsor break, and also anyone who has just tuned in or clicked on the computer to uh, play the broadcast today, you are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox on Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ALRPRA Incorporated here in Chicago. Our first sponsor is attorney Nancy K. Ducharme. She's a trademark and intellectual property attorney. When you need the right legal services to advance your creativity, and think of marketing law as a, as a practice area. She's a marketing law, good analogy. Call the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme. Attorney Nancy K. Ducharme brings big law firm experience and reputation to her intellectual property law firm as she serves national corporate clients in the areas of trademark, copyright, internet law, and advertising law. Nothing's worse than having a branding company go through an ad campaign to find out that there's a block to one of the marks they want to use. You can always find the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme by visiting nkdlaw.com and also by searching for the law office of Nancy K. Ducharme on Facebook. By clicking the like button on the law firm's business page, you'll receive periodic blog updates and recent developments in the rapidly changing field of intellectual property law. Now back to the lawyer's uh, toolbox on Law Talk Radio. We want to encourage our listeners to call in with any questions they have for attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm of Elmhurst. Uh, the telephone number is area code 917 Again, 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the queue. Now back to uh, Attorney Cannon. I do have a question uh, as far as some of the resources and time that you mentioned in uh, preparing to litigate a medical malpractice case. What type of staff and time resources should a reasonably sized firm be considering when taking um, a medical malpractice case? Well, again, that's something you can see wide variance on. There are extremely successful and competent medical malpractice attorneys who have a small firm of one or two lawyers and a relatively small staff of one or two employees, but they have the knowledge and experience to handle those cases, and they organize them to follow them. Other law firms that handle them may have 10 or 20 lawyers and a staff that's twice that size, it just depends on how they want to run their firm and what they want to do. I would say there's really no no difference necessarily in a firm with two lawyers versus a firm with 20 or 30 lawyers in whether or not they can handle a medical malpractice case. It's really more of a business model idea. The main issue in handling the cases from firm size is really just the firm's willingness to devote the time and money to the case that is required. And a small firm may may have uh, more outside resources, meaning registered nurses that can help organize and explain medical records, uh, different physicians that may be contacted on a consultant basis more frequently rather than just trial witnesses. A bigger firm may have a nurse on staff that's employed directly by that firm. But it's not to say that one firm or the other is necessarily going to provide better service. The main issue is one of dedication to the cases, dedication to learning the medicine, putting in the hours, and, and certainly putting in the money as well. Um, not to pick on any different career, but there's, there's probably firms out there that handle a different kind of work who would never, ever think of, of spending $50,000 on a case that are hugely successful and make plenty of money in their own right, 
it's just that kind of animal, a medical negligence case, that requires a tremendous investment of time and money to be successful. All right, very good. Um, let's move right and dive right into some of the uh, substantive um, things and considerations and uh, areas where we do see injuries, first being the failure to properly diagnose. Well, failure to diagnose is a very common issue in medical malpractice cases. Uh, obviously, it can, it can be any sort of illness, one that you see frequently in the newspapers or in the legal reporters if you're following medical malpractice is a failure to diagnose cancer. Obviously, there's very different kinds of cancer, but this can involve a, uh, a gynecologist or an internal medicine doctor who has a patient with certain signs and symptoms that they should be recognizing could be cancer. It goes to any other condition as well. It could be a failure to diagnose an infection, a failure to diagnose a certain heart condition, but all of these fall under that rubric of failure to diagnose. And in a case like that, an attorney needs to make sure you find the right specialist. If it's a failure to diagnose cancer case and it's uh, breast cancer or some sort of ovarian cancer, you're going to need to contact and retain physicians in both the obstetrics and gynecology area as well as oncology area. And in a gynecological case, there's specialists that are gynecologic oncologists. Those people need to be contacted, sent all the medical records, so you can figure out whether there was negligence and whether there is proximate cause. This is a good example of a case where you're going to need multiple experts because in a case of some sort of gynecological cancer, you're going to have to have a gynecologist, usually just a general gynecologist, as you would find in an office down the street, to testify about the deviation from the standard of care. Many oncologists are not the type that are being diagnosing patients for the first time. They're, they're specialists who are referred patients from a gynecologist. So you're going to have to have a gynecologist to review all the records and determine whether that doctor should have diagnosed the condition and when they should have diagnosed it. And second, you're going to have to have a gynecologic oncologist to testify that the failure to diagnose at the right time or before a certain time is what caused the injury. This is also a good example of case where you need to be able to show that the deviation from the standard of care did in fact cause an injury and that it caused an injury serious enough to merit filing a lawsuit. If someone is diagnosed with cancer, there's a big difference between being diagnosed with it two years earlier, one would hope. However, it depends on the kind of cancer and it depends on the treatments that are available. If you're, having, if you're trying to prosecute a failure to diagnose cancer case, you need to have your experts ready to testify and in a logical way that's consistent with the science that that timing of the diagnosis came too late and that if the diagnosis was made earlier, a better result would have been obtained. In a cancer case, this can be especially difficult because you need to prove whether cancer would have been non-fatal or caused far less of an injury if it had been diagnosed earlier. And that's where it's really essential to learn the medicine and do a very careful review of those records while you're screening that case to make sure that it merits filing it. The last thing you want to do is, is drag a family of someone suffering from cancer who has died from cancer through three years of litigation and then wind up with a weak case that you're going to lose in front of a jury. Other kinds of failure to diagnose can occur with uh, simple infections, whether it just be from an accident or wound or an infection following some kind of a surgery. Others can be if a person is recovering from surgery, you need to have uh, doctors that are recognizing symptoms of complications from that surgery. Even after a successful surgery, there can be known complications that may occur in any given patient 
and a doctor has to recognize those in a timely manner. All of these cases, again, require the retention of expert witnesses to testify and knowledgeable attorneys who can review those records. A big issue in any failure to diagnose case, as in the cancer case I was using as a description, is that you're able to show that the failure to diagnose in a timely manner is what caused an injury serious enough to merit the litigation and the time and expense to go into it. It's rare, usually, that you'll have a doctor completely miss a diagnosis, considering all the different doctors and nurses that are seeing patients. What you often have is a doctor or nurse that misses the diagnosis until it's too late, meaning the, the injury is actually diagnosed, finally, but in too, in too late, in a non-timely manner. And that's a situation where, again, you have to be able to comb those records and find the point where that diagnosis should have been made and then compare that time to the time it was actually made and see whether or not that's enough to show not just the deviation from the standard of care, meaning they should have made the diagnosis at the earlier date, but showing that the difference between those two times, those two times made the treatment that was available ineffective or was too late to save a person's life or save them from a severe disabling injury. Chuck, as uh, you've been describing some of the failure to diagnose, we received a message here from a show listener, and I'll just read you this message, and uh, if you're interested in commenting, please do. The message uh, appears to come from um, a username of illness defined. It may be a medical professional. I'm not sure. But the message is that it says, if a patient has been diagnosed with a disease or condition that has no identified cause and or no prescribed cure, then the possibility of being influenced by one or more of the heavy metals is severe. Um, what's that all about? <laughs> you know, I could only guess what, what that person may be referring to. Heavy metals, mercury, for example, is a heavy metal. Mm -hmm. So it could be they're alluding to an idea that if someone has a condition that maybe mimics symptoms of a, of a contagious disease, but you're not finding any contagion in the person, it could be as a result of a heavy metal poisoning like mercury poisoning. That's mm -hmm. true. Uh, hypothetically, if you had a, a client who, who was going to the doctor repeatedly for different signs, different symptoms of an illness, and the doctor was alternately diagnosing colds, flus, chickenpox, whatever, and never really finding a contagion when they're taking blood samples and doing lab work, that could be a situation where the doctor should be considering maybe this is not due to a contagious disease, maybe it's due to an exposure to some substance, such as a heavy metal or a work injury exposed, being exposed to different toxic fumes. That's something that I think doctors should be looking for if the situation is right. Typically, I think a doctor or defense expert is going to say, well, you're not going to first start looking for mercury. You're first going to look for a cold. That's an issue where being able to prove that the timing is bad can be extremely difficult. But I've seen cases, and if you have medical records in your file where a person goes for many, many uh, doctor's visits, all of the labs tests are negative, antibiotics aren't working, that could be a situation where the doctor needs to think about some sort of chemical or other substance exposure and considering that. If you find out that that's indeed the case, that a person was exposed to heavy metals or some solvent or something of that nature, where the doctor just continuously was diagnosing a cold and prescribing treatment that had no effect whatsoever, that could be a deviation from the standard of care and then you need to consider what could have been done about it. If you have a, a substance that the doctor was missing, but there is no treatment other than to try to live with it, well, there's really no reason to sue that physician then. 
But if there's a treatment that was available and was not given because the doctor is repeatedly missing a diagnosis that was indicated by that patient's condition, then that could be a medical negligence case. Again, then you have to get very specific, find out what was the cause, figure out with your experts and by your medical research what should have been done, and see if you can prove that case and if the damages merit it. All right. Well, that is a very clear answer um, and something that, uh, you know, I suppose is something that happens often when you don't have an identified cause and there's no prescribed cure to an illness. So thank you again to uh, the listener out there, Illness Defined, who uh, sent in that question. Let's pause quickly for our second commercial break, then we'll get back and start talking about surgical errors. But first, if you want to get clients now, there's a seasoned attorney and marketing coach you need to talk to. His name is Jim Thompson, and his program is called Get Clients Now. He'll help you take the crucial steps towards increasing the firm's revenue by using the Get Clients Now program, which employs various time-honored techniques, help to attract new business and encourage referrals. Jim is going to be a recurring guest on the Lawyer's Toolbox Show regarding attorney marketing. And to learn more about Jim Thompson and the Midwest Consulting Group, please visit MidwestConsultants.net. You can also check out his testimonials on Facebook by searching Get Clients Now. ALRPRA strongly endorses the Get Clients Now program and understands the personal accountability component of this course. Again, you can get in touch with Jim Thompson today by contacting MidwestConsultants.net. Again, the telephone number for callers to call in and ask a question or make a comment is area code 917-889-9732. Again, 917-889-9732. Press option 1, or you can send me an email at info, I-N-F-O, at A-L-R-P-R-A.com. You are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox Show on Law Talk Radio. Now back to attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm, located in Elmhurst, Illinois. Chuck, let's uh, move on to surgical errors, if you could. Well, surgical errors are a very interesting part of medical malpractice to me because during a surgery, you have a situation of known complications. If anyone has surgery in a hospital, they're going to be signing a a consent form, which usually lists some known complications, but almost definitely will say that you agree there and and it has been explained to you that there are complications to surgery but you agree to go forward with the surgery nonetheless. An obvious known complication during surgery is that there can be an accidental cut to the wrong area or other sorts of injuries when you've got a doctor with scalpels and all sorts of equipment inside a person's body. If you have an injury during a surgery due to some surgical error, that's a case where you can very clearly have a mistake that does not rise to the level of deviation from the standard of care. That's obviously something you have to figure out very carefully by talking to your experts and reviewing the medical literature. However, there can be situations where there is an error during surgery, and it is a deviation, and this is where it gets very complex. One situation where you can see this happen is if a part of the body is injured that is not within the realm of known complications. Depending on your surgery, there are different parts of your body that are near the issue, the uh, area where you're being operated. Clearly, if some part of your body is cut or otherwise injured that's very far from that area, I would have to say that could be a case. Furthermore, doctors are supposed to know your anatomy, and when they're operating on a certain part of your body, they're supposed to be very cognizant of the nerves in the area, the blood vessels in the area, and should certainly avoid cutting those nerves and blood vessels. And depending on what they cut, it could be a deviation. Again, that's a matter that's very case-specific and obviously relies on expert testimony to prove. Another issue with surgical errors 
is whether the doctors are using the correct equipment. When a surgery is planned, the doctors will send in their lists or have lists in on file in the hospital of what equipment they want to have. Depending on the surgery that's going to be performed, the nurses and hospital employees will gather the equipment that's necessary for that procedure. And all of that is supposed to be ready in the operating room. If a certain catheter or other device is used, very often those will come in a kit. And within that kit, which is a sealed bag or box, the catheter itself, for example, and all the other equipment that's required to use that catheter will normally be in, uh, enclosed. If the wrong size catheter is ordered or the wrong size sutures are used for a certain procedure or a certain patient, that can result in an injury. And obviously this is, these are very subtle differences that you need to be able to recognize when you're reviewing the medical records and that you need to be able to show through pulling the, med the right medical literature or the manufacturer's documents of those products to show that the wrong equipment was used for that, different, that, that particular blood vessel or that particular patient and wound up causing an injury. Additionally, failure to diagnose can play into surgical errors because during a surgery you might see drops in, in blood pressure or other situations immediately post-surgery that is a complication of that surgery that, that may go unrecognized. Even if it's a known complication that occurs from the surgery, the physicians are expected to recognize it and treat it as fast as possible. And even a known complication can result in medical malpractice if it's not recognized in a timely fashion and treated successfully. A good example can be with regards to the medical equipment. For a small child or an infant, obviously you're going to need different sized catheters and other equipment than you would for a full-grown adult. All of those have to be available in the room. Additionally, they need to be available at, at the right time, meaning when that surgery is performed. If a doctor starts the surgery and is relying on the hospital to have the right equipment there, and then in the middle of surgery the equipment's not available, that delay could result in injury or could result in the wrong equipment being used as they try to just keep going with the surgery that could cause an injury. Surgical errors, because there are known complications of surgeries, can be difficult to detect and often patients don't detect them because they will accept the fact that they were cut open and something was injured without thinking that it might be a wrongfully caused issue. Surgical errors are a situation where you often find patients not consulting attorneys until some time later as the injuries become worse and worse or after a death occurs because many patients, just like jurors, will accept the fact that injuries can happen during a surgery. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier the concept of statute of limitations and perhaps extending the statute of limitations uh, past the two-year period because an injury that was wrongfully caused was not recognized right away. Additionally, it's worth noting that when you're talking about surgeries, you often you're talking about bleeding as part of the injury. A high amount of blood loss can result in brain damage to a patient. And if a patient is so brain damaged that they become disabled mentally, Attorneys need to keep in mind that when a person is disabled in that manner such that they cannot protect themselves and make decisions for themselves, there is no statute of limitations until that disability is removed. That's another issue where you need to make sure that you're an experienced attorney if you're trying to screen cases yourself and that you're aware of the law or that you refer cases like this to experienced medical malpractice attorneys because a, a brain-damaged uh, client, a family member, could come to you asking you to represent them and it could be years past the initial injury, 
attorneys need to remember that with a, with a disabled person like that that cannot communicate, recognize problems for themselves, or make decisions for themselves, there really is no statute of limitations, and cases shouldn't be turned down until you review that person's condition and make sure that they are past the statute of limitations. Good advice. By the way, while we were uh, jumping back a little bit, while we were talking about this, I also took a look um, our message from our uh, individual out there. There's this illness defined is a book actually, and there's a website for it, um, www.illnessdefined.com. Very interesting. Uh, all sorts of theories on heavy metals and causes of different uh, diseases. Moving on, so from surgical errors. Um, next, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, hospi hospital and institutional negligence? Well, that hospital negligence can be different than physician negligence. And up till now when I've been giving different examples, we've been talking about medical malpractice, meaning a physician deviating from the standard of care. Typically, when you have a, a medical malpractice case, a doctor is, one or more doctors is a defendant. And that's because doctors are the ones who ultimately are responsible for providing medical care, prescribing treatments, and diagnosing illnesses. However, often a hospital or whatever institution is involved will also be a likely defendant in a case in really two primary situations. One is if the physician is an agent for that hospital. And often people don't realize that doctors are usually not employed by the hospitals they're working and prescribing treatment at. They are given staff privileges to work at that hospital, but almost never employed by the hospital, except in a couple of uh, less typical situations. If, however, the patient reasonably is relying on the fact that these doctors are agents of the hospital. The hospital can be sued on an agency basis. Another issue with hospital negligence is if the hospital's employees, such as the nurses or other staff that are actual employees of the hospital, have participated in the negligence to cause the patient's injury. This can be if a nurse is not relaying information to the doctors properly, or if a nurse is responsible for providing the wrong equipment or the wrong medication are typical ways you can see an employee resulting in hospital negligence. But other than that, it can also be an issue of wrong equipment being provided, as we mentioned during the surgical errors, or the hospital not having the proper procedures in place. Every hospital has huge sets of policies and procedures to deal with the different issues, and those procedures are subject to the standard of care just as a doctor's performance is. If those procedures are not up to the current standard of care, or if the procedures are contradictory and confusing to the employees and physicians that are required to follow them, those can result in hospital negligence and a lawsuit against the hospital. Sometimes you see hospitals that grant those privileges to the physicians who work there in an improper manner. Perhaps the, the hospital gives privileges to a physician who really isn't qualified for a certain procedure. The privileges the hospital gives to a doctor are not just limited, not just general that that doctor can work at a hospital, but they can be very specific as well regarding what procedures the doctor is allowed to perform. And that's supposed to be based on the doctor's qualifications and experience as proven to the hospital through a really rigorous procedure. If that doctor does not have the privileges to perform a certain surgery or other procedure there, but the hospital allows them to do so, that can result in hospital negligence. If a hospital grants privileges to a doctor to perform procedures that he's not qualified to perform, 
that could be an, in, an instance of hospital negligence. And this again shows how medical negligence and medical malpractice cases are, are very esoteric and require a lot of research into what happened. You could have a patient coming out with an injury and reviewing the medical records cannot, be, cannot always be enough. You have to review the doctor's employment file, the doctor's qualifications, the doctor's history, and get the procedures and policies that hospital has and see if they were followed correctly and also review them to make sure that those hospital procedures are up to the standard of care in that field. Likewise, if a you know, hospital... Oh, go ahead, Nick. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, when you were talking about the, um, you know, something going on at the hospital as far as uh, staff and resources, I recall when the, um, when the government went on strike several years ago, what is that, 10, 15 years ago now, um, I wonder if a lot of uh, law was decided um, on that point, you know, what happens in those events or whether that was already there. It's just something that struck in, struck in my mind as you were uh, explaining some of the issues. Yeah, I'm sure if, if, if large numbers of people aren't showing up for work at a hospital, it can be very difficult to deal with the patients and, and it can raise a bunch of specialized issues that may have to be carefully reviewed. Oh, and budget, budget cuts still on, as an ongoing thing with different economies. Yeah, of course. And you need to, if you're evaluating a case, you need to consider what treatment is available and where it's available. If the, if the treatment your patient needed that the doctor failed to prescribe is only performed at a few select university hospitals across the country, that needs to be taken into account. And I've had to deal with that in cases where the, the treatment that I'm saying should have been given to a patient was only offered at a few select hospitals around the country. You have to take into account scheduling, transportation, and, and all of that into your timing of it to determine whether the patient could have been more successfully treated. So those are all issues that come into it. It's not just reading textbooks. You have to also take into account what's going on in your area and in the medical field in general. Very good. Did you have any more uh, comments on hospital or institutional negligence? Well, clearly that's something you can talk about all day. Another issue with institutional negligence is really not just looking at what the doctors do, but what the nurses, nurses' assistants, and hospital employees are doing as well. And when you're reading those records, you need to be able to understand that there's communicating going on all the time. Doctors aren't always in that patient's room, but who is in the room is nurses and nurses' aides who are supposed to be taking note of different things and relaying those issues to the doctors, whether it's calling the doctors on the phone at home or getting a hold of your staff MD who's at the hospital 24-7 to make sure someone is properly notified. And if a nurse is not doing her job, whether it be something as simple as uh, providing the patient the medicine that's been prescribed or calling a doctor on the phone to, to note a change in condition, that's an, that's an incident where you can have institutional negligence on the part of that hospital as well. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right, well, let's take a, our final uh, break. For those of you recently tuning in or just click to listen, you are listening to the Lawyer's Toolbox program on Law Talk Radio brought to you by ALR PRA Incorporated. Our third sponsor of the day is credit damage expert George Finder. George Finder is one of the only credit damage experts in the country, and attorneys and plaintiffs who have retained his services have earned huge damage awards in various practice areas, including personal injury, employment law, 
family, and general civil, civil litigation. I'm also guessing medical malpractice, uh, possibly. But by learning to incorporate the credit damage questions into the intake process, you and your staff will learn how to spot credit damage events worthy of retaining George Finder's credit damage analysis services. We have a special right now for any of our listeners who do contact George Finder and tell them that they heard about him on ALR PRA Law Talk Radio. They will receive free of charge one hour of CLE presentation. So grab a pen and take down this email address to respond to this offer. The email is credit damage associates, plural, credit damage associates at gmx.com. Again, credit damage associates at gmx.com. Available nationwide, credit damage expert George Finder's website is also full of resources. You can find that at creditdamageexpert.com. Again, www.creditdamageexpert.com to learn more about George Finder and his expert services. We remind our callers to dial in with any questions during the show at 917-889-9732 and press option 1 to be placed in the queue. And anyone who is listening after the show can always email a question to info at alrpra.com and we will forward those questions to our guests. Now back to our, our final segment. We are talking to Attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm in Elmhurst, Illinois. Um, Chuck, can you tell us a little bit about obstetrical negligence? Well, obstetrical negligence is really one of the most complicated and difficult areas of medical malpractice. Obviously, there's much that people still don't know about what goes on when a fetus is gestating and is delivered. However, what we do know is very important and very difficult, and frequently you see cases come in where there has been an issue of a child's condition during or shortly after delivery, and a parent is very upset and just really looking for help and trying to find out what happened. Sometimes this can be the result of negligence. The the classic issue that you hear and read about is whether there was a timely delivery, and this can be whether there should have been a cesarean delivery performed or whether some sort of assistance with forceps or vacuum should have been performed or was performed properly. A reason obstetrical negligence is heard of so much in this industry is they they can result in some of the most severe injuries that you'll ever see. If there is a delay in timely delivery, it can result in a lack of oxygen to a baby's brain and can result in severe injuries such as cerebral palsy. A child born with cerebral palsy or other brain injury can require a lifetime of professional care that can have a cost of millions of dollars. And that's not to mention the horrible loss of a normal life this child has suffered from those injuries and never being able to walk correctly or speak or have a job and really is is an injury that lasts from birth throughout a normal life expectancy. This is this this injury is, is what you see in the papers sometimes when you see enormous verdicts of ten or fifteen or twenty million dollars. And that really accounts for what we have with the enormous cost of care for a lifetime of care for these children. It it's extremely tragic and requires a huge amount of investment in time to learn the medicine behind these cases as well as money because often these cases will require four or five or more experts be retained to testify at trial. Frequently what will happen with an obstetrical negligence case from an attorney's standpoint is a possible client will call or come into your office explaining that they had either a stillbirth or a child born with some severe injury and they're trying to really find out what happened. It can happen as a result of a physician failing to recognize during the prenatal care 
that that patient may have been showing signs of problems that would mandate an earlier delivery than the normal 40 weeks. Sometimes a, a patient, a mother who's pregnant, will be having an increase in high, in high blood pressure or other problems like gestational diabetes, and all these need to be very carefully monitored and dealt with to prevent injury to the mom as well as to the baby. It's very specialized, and when a case like this comes in, it's essential to get every single page of the medical records and then have it reviewed by experts. This is also a case which goes back to the extended statute of limitations issue. If, if a patient, if a possible client comes in with a child with cerebral palsy or another brain injury, you need to remember that just because that patient is, is, was born over eight or ten years ago does not mean there's no case because with an injury to the brain that results in a person not being able to make their own decisions, that's a case where there really is no effective statute of limitations. Another issue with regards to these cases and injured children is to consider that a minor, even in a medical negligence case, will have an extended statute of limitations of eight years from the injury. So that needs to be considered as well when these cases are being reviewed. Now, some of the common things you see re regarding a labor and delivery case is during labor, pretty much in every hospital and every locale in the United States, the mom is going to be put on a fetal monitor. Two belts are around the tummy, and there's different sensors. One measures the mom's contractions, and the other measures the baby's heart rate. And this is the best way medicine is determined to monitor the health of that fetus up until the time of delivery. The way the heart rate reacts to contractions and the heart rate of the baby as far as being too fast or too slow tells the physicians how that baby is responding to the trauma of delivery. Obviously, it's difficult to deal with all those contractions, but most babies can bounce back from it, and you can see that on the fetal, fetal monitor. However, certain signs will show that that baby's in trouble, the baby's brain is not getting enough blood, and then a delivery needs to be begun right away by a cesarean delivery. And the signs of this are really in all the medical textbooks, and every obstetrician should know them. However, sometimes they're missed if a nurse isn't communicating properly with the physician, or if the physician is maybe just trying to wait a little bit longer to try to avoid that cesarean section for whatever reason. And that's when you can sometimes result in a very tragic injury of brain damage and cerebral palsy. Other issues with regards to obstetrical negligence include uh, birth trauma such as shoulder dystocia. A shoulder dystocia really just means that the labor is not progressing normally because one or more one of the baby's shoulders is stuck somewhere in the birth canal, usually at the pelvis. And these are situations where a doctor has to be trained properly know how to deal with that so the baby can be delivered without causing an injury to the baby's shoulder. Part of the baby's anatomy includes the brachial plexus, which is where the nerves are connecting to the baby's spine. And if the shoulder is stuck behind the pelvis and the wrong procedures and techniques are used, those nerves can be stretched, torn, or completely pulled away from the spine, and that can result in a permanent disability of the baby's arms. And those are things that an attorney needs to look for when they're reviewing medical records is to know all the different techniques of delivery to, to be able to determine if those records show the right techniques were used. Wow. There are so many things that are potential negligence cases there. Um, are there any any other interesting 
or exceptions or anything else you'd like to add uh, on any of these points? We have a, a few minutes left. Well, sure. I think I think the main thing to emphasize in, in talking to attorneys about medical malpractice cases is that they really just have to know how to screen for them. An attorney that wants to handle these needs to know what statute, uh, statutes of limitations apply and be able to obtain all the medical records and understand those medical records to determine whether there's a case. And attorneys that want to refer these cases out need to be able to know who to call and who to send these cases to because the cases are very important and it's, it's, they're very difficult, but I think that our neighbors need to be able to find help if they've been hurt by a doctor's negligence. They can take any form, and again, it's important to realize that it doesn't necessarily involve a doctor's problem. It could be a hospital's problem and not having the right policies or equipment, or it could be a nurse failing to communicate with the physician. Sometimes even in medical negligence, it's not a medical case, but a problem with the products that are used in treating a person. I've had cases that looked like they were starting out as medical negligence, and then it would turn out that defective devices were actually used based on no fault of the doctor, but devices that were manufactured or designed improperly that were used in, in the surgery or that were implanted in the patient to treat them, and those devices failed, which resulted in severe injuries. So all of these are things that people need to keep in mind when they're looking at these cases. Medical malpractice cases have gotten a lot of bad press lately as people have begun, begun concerned about the amount of insurance for doctors and whether doctors are fleeing the state or, or people aren't going into the medical business because they're worried about attorneys. And that's a serious issue, but equally important is that doctors are providing the right care for all patients they have, regardless of whether they're insured, where they live, or how much money they have. And attorneys perform a very important function in that area to make sure that doctors are practicing up to the standard of care and that patients are getting the right care that they need when they're going to the hospital or your doctor's office down the street. One last question. How do people get in touch with you uh, if they have questions about or are interested in uh, a referral for a medical malpractice case? Well, I can be reached at my office at the phone number 630-782-5879, and conveniently that last four digits spelled jury, 630-782-JURY, 630-782-5879. If anybody has any questions or wants to talk to me about screening or, or, or about a particular case, I'd be happy to talk to anyone. All right, very good. Thank you so much to our guest, Attorney Charles Cannon of the Cordic Law Firm in Elmhurst, Illinois. I would also like to thank our listeners for tuning into the Consumers Law Journal on ALRPRA Law Talk Radio. Today's sponsors were, number one, the Intellectual Property Law Office of Nancy K. Ducharme, secondly, Jim Thompson of Midwest Consulting Group, and third, credit damages expert George Finder. Again, as a disclaimer, this is a general information program, and the advice shared on this show does not constitute legal advice. Results may vary and are based on facts, facts in your location. You are encouraged to always consult a professional. Be advised, the laws may vary from state to state, as they could apply to the comments made on this show. Comments made to callers by attorney and professional guests do not constitute attorney, client, or other professional relationships. All callers do remain confidential, and the rights to this broadcast are reserved by ALRPRA Incorporated. ALRPRA Law Talk Radio's mission is to bring our attorney and non-attorney audiences the tips, tools, and practice area information they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers as we all navigate the always evolving.
With guests and listeners located nationwide, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. ALRPRA's underlying issues, underlying values are transparency, flexibility, and humility. We are a full-service law practice management agency available nationwide when professional quality matters to your firm. Thank you again, and please tune in to our next episode of the Lawyer's Toolbox next Thursday. And don't forget to check out the Consumer's Law Journal programs on Tuesday. Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Chuck, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Again, this is Nick Augustine for ALRPRA Incorporated, and we thank you for your time.